Well, Happy New Year. You survived 2008. It's on the books. It's over. How many of you are glad of that? Yeah, a lot of us. But you know, there's nothing really magical about the flipping over the calendar, is there? From one month to the next or one year to the next. It's kind of like Pastor Jay was telling us last week. It's the choices that we make in the new year that will determine if we end up in a different place at the end of 09 than we did at 08. And uh, we're just praying that God would give us the strength to make really good choices. Hey, you keeping your eye on Israel. Always keep one eye on Israel. God's prophetic plan, the unfolding of God's redemptive plan of the ages, is always tied not to the United States, but to the nation of Israel. And, um, you know, he says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The embattled people of God need peace. And it also says, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. So it's uh, never wise to take an adversarial stance against the nation of Israel because you might find yourself fighting against Jehovah God, in which case you will be overmatched. (laughs) So um, let's bow our heads and take a moment and just pray for God's chosen people and what's going on and also ask the Lord to speak to us today. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our Savior, our Lord, our Master. We do thank you for a new year. Lord, it just gives us fresh perspective, and in some cases, some might feel a chance to kind of start over and maybe regain some things that were lost or set out in a new direction this year. And Lord, we pray for your leading of our body and each individual person and family here. And we do lift up your chosen people, Israel. And Lord, we pray that you would carry out your plans, your decrees for that nation and uh, bring into fulfillment everything that you have ever planned for the end times. All things ultimately would, would be brought under the feet of Jesus Christ, King Jesus. And Lord, uh, we don't fear in these days, but we trust you and our ultimate hope is in you, Lord Jesus. So strengthen that sense in us here as we start out at the front end of a brand new year. And uh, we offer these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I have a little prop with me today. A rubber band. And you know what they say about rubber bands. They say that once a rubber band has been stretched, that it never really returns to its original shape. It's forever changed by that stretching. One of the comments I've heard many times over the years about people who come to New Life is that they appreciate the fact that this is a church that stretches them, where we're challenging each other to grow and to, to make progress in our relationship with God and, and not just to be satisfied with where we're at. And uh, maybe you're new to New Life today. I mean, it is the beginning of the new year, and maybe you made a resolution. You know, I'm going to this is the year I'm going to start going to church or maybe come back to church. And to you, we say, welcome. We really do. But we want you to know that if you're the kind of person that is totally committed to the status quo in your life, that you're never going to change, you might be a little uncomfortable here. And in fact, I pray that you'll be a little uncomfortable here because we want to be stretched. We're certainly a, a community of believers that's learning how to be joyful and content in God but never satisfied with where we're at spiritually. 
I like to say we're a, a community of real people being transformed by a real God into real followers of Jesus Christ. So if you're new here today, welcome. Come as you are, but please don't stay that way. Let God stretch you. Let God transform you. Well, you know, it's a, a good time of year to tackle something that's been kind of burning in my heart for several months, and not just mine, but um, our whole leadership team has been feeling this. And so I want to bring up a topic today and, and really just kind of lay some groundwork, pour a foundation this morning upon which over the next several weeks we're going to construct something together, we're going to build something together. And the way I'd like to begin is to have you stand, if you would, and some scripture is going to appear on the screen. So would you stand with me? And let's read aloud together from the text, 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. It's on the screens. It's also on your study guide, your study outline in your bulletin. So here we go. Ready? Verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. You may be seated. He knows everything. He knows our hearts. Well, just so you know where I'm headed this morning, I'm going to start by just teaching through this passage and pulling out the key concepts that John wanted to get across. And then uh, at the end, I'm going to draw some inferences from it for New Life Church, for us, right here at the outset of 2009. And I do think it's going to stretch us a little bit, okay? And I hope you're ready for that. First, just notice that the theme of this section is love. Do you see that? Love one another. John says, love each other. Verse 11 makes that very plain. Now John, and this is the Apostle John, one of the original disciples of Jesus, John was a black and white sort of guy, like some of you are. And when it came to, to people's spiritual condition, the condition of their heart, he, he was like black and white. It's like you're either in or you're out. You're either in the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. You're either walking in love or you're walking in hatred. He was just a black and white sort of guy. And so he says, unashamedly, right up front, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to love your brothers and sisters in the family of God. And he, he makes several important points about loving one another that I want to draw out here. And the first is this. He says, it's not, this is not a new message I'm giving you. 
This is the message you heard from the beginning, he said. Loving each other is actually an age-old message. And I think he was probably thinking back, perhaps 60 years to when he walked the Judean countryside with Jesus himself. And he heard Jesus on several occasions say things like, a new command I give you that you love each other. As I have loved you, you also love one another. He also heard him say, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you what? If you love one another. And so John here to his, his audience here is saying, look, I'm not springing anything new on you. I'm just restating and reinforcing something Jesus often talked about and it needs to be restated to you. Love each other. Number two, it's a command. We should love one another, he said. Loving each other is commanded of God's people. God's very serious about this. I think in part because how we treat each other reflects back on our, our God, our Creator. One first century historian noted that uh, people living in Jerusalem during that first century marveled at how Christians treated each other. They said, see how they love one another. Whether it's fair or not, whether we like it or not, a watching world forms their opinion of our God in part from how we, God's people, treat one another. I wonder how many people have been turned off to God over the years because they knew someone who called themselves a Christian and they saw them treating other people in less than loving ways and got turned off to God and said, you know, if that's what being a Christian is, who needs it? Count me out. The Lord makes it very clear. He wants his people to love each other. So New Life Church today, I say to you, love one another. It's commanded by our God. Number three, love, as many of us have discovered, can be choked out. It can be suffocated by anger and resentment. When John was looking for a negative example, someone to not follow, someone who did not love very well, and he looked back into the Old Testament scriptures, who did he land on? Cain. He said, do not be like that guy, Cain. What do we know about Cain? Uh, Who were Cain's parents? Adam and Eve, that's right. Part of the first family. Um... Did Cain have a wife? Yes, he did. You can read it in Genesis 3.17. Cain had a wife. How about this question? Where did Cain get his wife? Ah, the biblical trivia stumper question of all time. Where did Cain get his wife? Right after, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. Where did Cain get his wife? The answer? His wife was most certainly a close relative, probably his sister. Think about it. There weren't many other options. But don't worry yourself about that. Don't lose sleep over it. It's it's not that important in the grand scheme of things. Did Cain have any siblings? Yeah, he had, we know, at least a brother whose name was Abel. And what did Cain do to Abel? He killed him. Yeah, he killed his own brother. And John says he killed him because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. I want us to go back and read the account of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. 
to get the full picture of what happened here and why John is saying, don't be like that guy. It starts out like this, Genesis 4, verse 1. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil as a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Of course, that presupposes that each of these brothers knew what God's requirement was for the offerings they were to bring. And so it says, Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. You know what? When you get angry, you can't hide it for that long. It's going to show up on your face. It's going to show up on your countenance. And that's what happened with Cain. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must master it. I think what God was saying to Cain at that moment was this. Look, Cain, this is a very critical moment in your life. This could very well be, this moment could very well be the defining moment of your life. You see, the the sin of anger is crouching at the door of your heart like a lion, ready to pounce on you. And if you don't master it, your whole life could head off in a direction that, that you don't want to go. I wonder how many families have been torn apart by anger. Anger. Anger gives birth to so much evil, doesn't it? Resentment, bitterness, violence, blow-ups, rage out of control. Untamed anger will kill relationships, will kill love. Cain allowed his anger towards Abel, Abel to simmer and simmer and simmer and till it became acidic, resentment. And then his resentment swirled in his soul into a violent storm and unleashed torrents of rage. And instead of rejoicing, you know, in his brother's success, and instead of rejoicing in that Abel found favor with God, Cain took a competitive stance of rivalry towards his brother and he began to plot and he began to scheme revenge. And one day the opportunity presented itself. Genesis 4.8. Cain said to his brother Abel, hey, let's go out into the field. Inferring where no one else is around. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now think about that. This is his younger brother. This is the kid he'd grown up with, played tag with, played pitch and catch with pomegranates with, perhaps. Kid he'd camped out with, told ghost stories to, shared a thousand meals with. Younger brother who probably looked up to him. The brother he should have loved like a brother. He got alone and isolated and brutally assaulted him, murdered him, spilled his blood, took his life. Listen, if you let it, untamed anger will cause you to do things, to say things, to hurt people, to injure people in ways that 
that you will regret later and be ashamed of later. Untamed anger. John, writing thousands of years later, shouts out the warning, Don't be like Cain! Don't be like that. Don't let anger choke out love. Especially for your brothers and your sisters. Anger is the enemy of love. We'll come back to Cain in a few minutes, okay? Number four. John asserts that that loving each other is an evidence of true salvation. If you look again at verses 14 and 15, he says, This is how we know that we've passed from death to life if we have love for our brothers. Basically, he's saying, you want to know if you're the real deal? (laughs) You want to know if you're the genuine article? You want to know if you've got the real thing, if Jesus is really your Savior, if the Holy Spirit really lives in you? John would say, if you're the real deal, it's going to show up. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. John says there's going to be this evidence, there's going to be an evident love for your brothers and sisters in the family of God. You're going to want to be around them. You're going to put up with their quirks and shortcomings and faults and idiosyncrasies like they put up with yours. You'll do all that because you share a common parentage. You are all sons and daughters of the Most High God, your Father. And so you're family. And he says, basically, love for your brothers is a birthmark. (laughs) Birthmark of a Christian, of someone who's been born again. Number five, after having pointed out a negative example, Cain, he now points to the best example of true love, who was Jesus. (laughs) This is how we know what love is, he says, Jesus Christ. Love was best exemplified by Jesus. You know, I imagine that in John's day, like in ours, many, many people were confused about the nature of true love. What is love? When that young man puts pressure on that young lady and says, if you really love me, you'll do this. Is that love? Or when the young lady, conversely, manipulates the young man and says, if you really love me, is that love? John says, if you want to know what true love is, look no further than Jesus Christ. He embodied love. He defined love. He demonstrated love, true love. By the way, the Greek language in which the New Testament was written has four words, Greek words, all translated by the one English word, love. Three of those four words are found in the New Testament. The first one is storgao. Would you say that? Storgao. New word for you. Greek word. Storgao is tender care like a mother would have for her infant. Tender, nurturing love. That's storgao. Second word is phileo. Would you say that one? Phileo. Philadelphia. Brotherly love. That's the, the kind of brotherly or, or sisterly love that we would see among siblings or hope to see among siblings. It's the kind of love that David and Jonathan in the Old Testament had for each other. It's the kind of love that Mary and Martha shared. It's the kind of love that Cain should have had for his brother Abel. 
That's the second kind of love. The third Greek concept of love was eros. You know what kind of love that is? We get our word erotic from it. That's sexual love, sensual, sexual expressions of love, eros. But the fourth one is agapao. Would you say that? Agapao. Or maybe you're familiar with the noun form, agape. And in the Greek culture, that was the highest form of love. That was was love that was selfless and sacrificial and serving others. That was love that always put the other's highest good in front of you and, and at any personal cost sought what was best for the other person. Agape love. That's the word here in 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what agape is. Jesus Christ. And then he defines it. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we, listen, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Let that sink in. Simple, but profound. Sounds so easy. Lay down your life. Very difficult. In fact, I would contend impossible. Isn't it true that by nature, most of us are pretty much wrapped up in ourselves and absorbed in our own lives? And the notion of laying down my life for someone else can be kind of foreign. I contend it's really impossible apart from the love of Jesus Christ in us causing us to lay down our lives for others. Number six, if I didn't give it to you, love is defined as laying down our lives for each other. It's a lofty concept, and so John makes it very practical in verse 17, where he says, if anybody has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, and that word pity doesn't mean like, oh, pity them. (laughs) What a pity. It's compassion, deep, heartfelt compassion. If you have no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Number seven, loving each other is expressed through awareness of needs and showing active compassion. Seeing their needs, becoming aware of people's needs, and then acting to meet those needs. Now, I think it's very interesting to note here how true love seeks to meet both spiritual needs and physical needs. Do you see that? In verse 16, it says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Well, that was certainly to meet our deepest spiritual need, wasn't it? For forgiveness of our sins, for salvation from sin. So that's an expression of love, meeting spiritual needs. But then in the very next verse, he says, now, if somebody has a physical need, a material need, and you meet that need, that is love also. You see, it's both. It's not either or. It's like so many things in the Christian walk. It's both and. True agape love has a genuine concern for the whole person, not just their body and not just their spirit. And it does something. It acts. It doesn't just talk. Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Along those lines, I am thrilled to report back to you today the the results of our Christmas offering, our compassion offering that we've taken up over the last few weeks. And again, 
I am just astounded because, you know, given the current economic climate, I was praying that God would touch the hearts of new lifers that we might perhaps reach a goal of $20,000. That was just my prayer. I thought, you know, given the situation, that would be incredible. Well, you guys gave $46,000 to this offering, which is like, no way. (laughs) And that offering is going to meet needs. People on the other side of the globe who don't even have clean water to drink. That we, through our generosity, our giving, or actually God's generosity through us, right, could build and rebuild wells for people who don't even have clean water. They can stop watching their infants die because of disease. And, right here at home, helping to meet the needs of struggling families who have gotten, you know, hurt by the economic downturn, downsized find themselves in emergency situations. We're starting to give this away already, and it's fun. And so I just want to say to you, way to go. Way to go, new life. God bless you. It tells me that you have the love of God in your heart, and you not only see needs and hear about needs, but you want to act and do something about it, just like John is talking about here. I pray that that spirit will continue and will spread tells me that you have a desire to really be a brother's keeper community. The final thing I want to pull out of this passage, number eight, it's kind of a restatement of what he said earlier. Loving each other gives us assurance that we really do belong to God. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us, he says, for God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Do you ever have thoughts, like accusing, condemning thoughts come into your mind? You ever have thoughts like that? Thoughts like, you know, you are a sorry excuse for a Christian. You might, you're probably not even really a genuine follower of Jesus. You're a phony. You're a fake. You ever have thought those kind of condemning, accusing thoughts? I do, from time to time. And what John is saying here is that, look, you can argue back against those accusations and you can say, whoa, whoa, time out. Wait a second. No, no. The love of God is in my heart. I can point to situations and incidents and people where my heart was touched by their needs and I saw it and I acted and God's love in me and through me met their needs. And that assures my heart that the love of God does reside in me. I am one of his. I do belong to God. And it can quiet a condemning conscience and heart. Well, let's review what we learned about love from this passage in 1 John 3. See if I can summarize it. The call to love each other is an age-old message that is commanded of us who follow Jesus. That love can be choked out by anger and resentment and can kill relationships. The presence of God's love in our hearts is an evidence of of true salvation, that we really are saved. Love was best exemplified by Jesus himself, and it's defined as laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters. It's expressed through being aware of the physical and spiritual needs of our fellow family members and then acting compassionately towards them. And when we see this active compassion in our lives, it assures us that we really do belong to God, who is the source 
of love. So does that sum it up? Pretty decent? Okay. Now let's talk for a minute about how this applies to New Life Church, to us, here on the front end of 09. It was about nine months ago I was presenting a teaching in a, a meeting of leaders here at New Life, about 40 or so leaders. And uh, I was talking about the value and the importance of having spiritual accountability in our lives, that this is just so important if we want to grow spiritually. And I was waxing eloquent, so I thought, on these matters. And I was talking about habit two and the importance of that weekly connection time with a small group and you know gathering people around you and speaking into each other's lives and doing life together and loving one another and how that should lead to habit three, which is having a, a monthly sharpening time with a spiritual partner. And I was going on and on talking about these things and really making a case. And I gave a challenge to these 40 leaders and said, why don't you just, if you're not doing this already, just try it for the next three months. Just try it. Trial period. And uh, I kind of finished it up. Felt pretty good, pretty smug about my presentation. And uh, then one of our, our leaders came up and started talking to me, and, and we started chatting about this. And he said, you know, Steve, he said, um, you know, you've just given us a challenge to do this for three months. And he said, you know, most of these folks here like you. <laughs> and so they'll probably do it. They'll probably do what you're asking, and maybe some of them feel like they need it and so forth. But he said, he said, you know what? It's not ever going to really take root in this church and be as widespread as you envision until the people of new life embrace, fully embrace a brother's keeper mentality. And I'm like, okay, tell me more. Talk to me more about that. He said, well, you know, people will listen to you and, 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 you know, you're saying, you know, you need to do this, you need to do this, important for your spiritual growth. And again, those that like you will probably do it, but it's not going to be widespread until the, the whole body of new life begins to feel that they are each other's keeper, their brother's keeper and their sister's keeper. And that they are not just responsible for their own spiritual growth, but they have a responsibility for the, the spiritual growth and development and well-being of the other people in the body. He said, that's when this thing is going to start spreading like wildfire. When there becomes at New Life Church a brother's keeper culture. And... Um, I went home that night, I wrote it down in my journal, I pondered this, I thought about it. I kind of resisted it a little bit, like some of you are. And then I thought, you know, he's right. <laughs> it's always going to be a, a top-down, you know, leadership down, you need to do this, until the people of New Life embrace their responsibility for each other's well-being. You know, sometimes God speaks to us through other people. Isn't that true? Sometimes God uses the vocal cords of others to get his message 
through to us. And I sensed that what Aaron was saying to me that day was true. And that God wanted me to understand this and get this. Let me ask you this question. What is Cain known for the most? Isn't Cain known for uttering one of the most infamous phrases in all of the Bible? You remember, after he attacked and killed his brother Abel, God came to him and God confronted him about it, and he said, um, Cain, where's your brother? Remember what Cain said? I, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, what are you saying, God? What are you, what are you implying? Am I supposed to be, like, keeping track of my brother and know his whereabouts at all times? I mean, what are you implying, God? Are you implying that I'm responsible for my brother's well-being, for how he's doing? And are you saying that you're holding me responsible for how he's doing? Is that what you're saying, God? Thousands of years later, the Apostle John writes, Don't be like Cain. Don't be like Cain and deny responsibility for your brothers and sisters. Don't be like Cain and dismiss their well-being as somebody else's responsibility. Don't be like Cain and let your heart get so gummed up with junk that you just don't care anymore. Don't be like Cain! You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. We're a family, brothers and sisters, and God calls us to care and love one another. This is going to be like one of those TV shows where you look at the clock and it's time for it to almost be over, but you're watching the plot unfold and you realize it's not really over, and then the title screen comes up, To Be Continued. Tune in next week for part two. And uh, that's where we're at right now with this notion of being a brother's keeper community. But I want to leave you with a few morsels, a few items, food for thought, I hope, that I hope you'll mull over in preparation for next weekend. Five quick thoughts about a brother's keeper community, okay? Number one, in a brother's keeper community, the members view each other as family, like brothers, sisters. Number two, in a brother's keeper community, members are committed not just to themselves, but to each other. Number three, in a brother's keeper community, members are committed to each other's physical and spiritual well-being, both. Number four, Here's the kicker. In a brother's keeper community, accountability is welcomed. Accountability in the family is welcomed and loving permissions are voluntarily given. Permissions are given. I give you permission to speak into my life. I give you permission to tell me the truth. I'm giving you permissions voluntarily. I'm not being forced to, but I'm giving you permissions to speak truth to me, to come alongside me in my time of need, and I'll come alongside you in your time of need as well. 
accountability is welcomed, not resisted, not bristled at, but welcomed in a brother's keeper community. People are saying to themselves and each other, not only do I need you in my life, but you need me in your life. We need each other. And number five, in a brother's keeper community, the weak receive special attention and care. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes about life in a spiritual community, the removal of the weak means the death of the fellowship. We need the fragile among us. We need the special needy among us. We need the handicapped among us. We need the weak among us because it brings out something in the body, in the community that would not be brought out if all of us are just doing cool and everybody's good. And sometimes we need to be in that that gracious environment where we say, you know what, right now I'm the fragile one. I'm the needy one. I'm the broken one. I'm the handicapped one. I need you in my life. I need you to lean on. I need you speaking into my life. In a brother's keeper culture, that's what happens. Something about this kind of community just rings true in my spirit. I hope it does in you. It's the kind of community I want to be a part of. It's the kind of community our Father calls us to. You say, well, this sounds countercultural, certainly in our American culture, which is so individualistic, right? And I'm telling you, it is countercultural. But isn't that what we're supposed to be? A countercultural movement within the larger culture that reflects and represents the values of our Father and His kingdom. You say, well, that's going to that's gonna stretch me. I'm a little uncomfortable with that, with what you're talking about. Yeah, it stretches me too. Makes me a little bit uncomfortable as well. But I'm asking the Lord to help us get there. Take us there. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Lord, many of us want to be stretched. Lord, even though it's uncomfortable at times. Lord, many of us in this room even are, truth be told, kind of disappointed at where we ended up, 08, just in lots of ways. There's some choices that you lay before us in 09. And one of those choices is to take a risk of getting connected in community with others with whom we'd be willing to share life together and give some of those permissions that I talked about. And Lord, we're not there, but would you please take us there? Take us where you want us to go, God, so that as a body we might reflect the agape love that is you. And uh, our pledge will be to give you praise and glory and to reflect you to a watching world. Thank you for your love for us. I offer this in Christ's name. Amen.